And you're on right now with Jim Dawes on the Mojo Five O Radio Network. Your daily journal of news, politics, and culture from an American nationalist perspective. Streaming live on iHeartRadio and available on demand on iTunes, TuneIn, Spreaker, and Spotify. You can follow me on Twitter at RightNowJimDawes or shoot me an email at RightNowJimDawes at gmail.com. You can leave a voicemail with your questions or comments at 772-245-0750. That's 772-245-0750. Well, the show was so busy yesterday with the anniversary of 9-11, and there was lots to say about that, and there's going to be even more to say about it in today's show. Plus the uh, the breaking fake news from CNN where they tried to blame Trump for um, burning an asset that uh, said to have uh, information from inside the Kremlin, when in fact it was none other than John Brennan at the CIA that was responsible for that, uh, feeding leaks to the New York Times and the Washington Post. And we really didn't get to talk about the uh, the firing or the the re- resignation of John Bolton, depending on who you want to believe, I think it's a, sort of a distinction without a difference. So we're going to talk about that today. Uh, in the second half of today's show, we're going to be joined by Ryan Luff- Lovelace. He has authored a new book, Search and Destroy, The Inside Campaign Against Brett Kavanaugh. And uh, that's going to be a good conversation. So... Um, John Bolton. John Bolton is one of the leading neocon war hawks uh, on the scene, along with Max Boot and Bill Crystal and the rest of the uh, cabal that uh, talked the gullible George W. Bush into taking us to war in Iraq and occupying that country and toppling the government and creating uh, just a powder keg over there. You know, prior to that, Iraq and Iran were sort of balancing each other off uh, in the region. They were busy uh, killing each other, and then we had to step in, uh, take down Saddam Hussein, who was, if nothing else, um, keeping al-Qaeda from uh, getting a toehold in Iraq because um, he was uh, somewhat secular, and the, uh, the Islamic fundamentalists hated Saddam Hussein, and he hated him right back. So it was a situation where we never should have got involved, but uh, John Bolton never saw a war that he didn't advocate for, and uh, and he convinced George W., who uh, was totally unequipped uh, to to be in that office, to uh, to take us into that disaster, and it has been a disaster ever since. So, uh, you know, there's a big debate whether or not John Bolton resigned or was fired. Uh, you know, if you ask for somebody's resignation, that's sort of the same. It's firing them, but it allows them to, you know, save face and uh, keep some uh, dignity as they walk out the door. And I, I actually think that it was not helpful for the president to go on Twitter and, uh, and you know, uh, announce that he fired John Bolton. He should now listen, <laughs> nobody hates John Bolton as much as I do, but it serves no purpose for an administration 
to embarrass uh, uh, somebody who has uh, agreed to serve, served for, I think it was 18 months in the White House. Wasn't, uh, never should have been there, but he he did serve. And, uh, and it doesn't put an administration in good stead with hiring uh, the, the next guy to replace him if you're going to kick the guy in the butt on the way out the door. So I've got a clip here uh, just to set this up. This is John Bolton. I don't think John Bolton ever served in the military. He's always been an academic. I heard uh, at one time he ran for president. I, I don't remember John Bolton ever running for president, but uh, Lord save us from that. Could you imagine? Uh, he he would have uh, started a nuclear war by now. But here's John Bolton, just a sampling of his uh, his belligerence throughout the years. I'm saying that military action was a result. I don't think I don't think there's any question that the decision to overthrow Saddam Hussein was the correct decision. The overthrow of Saddam Hussein, that military action was a resounding success. I support breaking Iran's control over the nuclear fuel cycle at certain key points, the uranium enrichment facilities, the uranium by bombing facility, right? by that or whatever whatever we can use. So that would be military action Absolutely. against Iran. Absolutely. You've written an op-ed today in the New York Times, and here's the headline. It's an eye-catcher. To stop Iran's bomb bomb Iran. I'm afraid, given the circumstances, that's the only real option open to us now. The fall of Saddam, no, did not make Iran stronger. What made Iran stronger ultimately was the withdrawal of American forces uh, in 2011. I do think that it would be in our interest to overthrow this regime in Syria. The best time to have done it would be right after we overthrew Saddam Hussein when we had hundreds of thousands of Americans. Yeah, where do we draw the line? You've called for regime change in Iraq, Libya, Iran. In Syria, in the first two countries, we've had regime change, and obviously, it's been—I'd say disaster. I think we no, agree. No, okay. I, I don't agree with that. The only diplomatic option left is to end the regime in North Korea by effectively having the South take it over. I think you've got to argue to China. That's not really diplomatic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, as yes, far as they're concerned. Well, that's their problem, not ours. He wants to bomb North Korea. He took us into the disastrous war in Iraq. I have no doubt that he advocated for not only invading Afghanistan, which I supported, but also staying there and occupying the country and trying to set up some sort of Jeffersonian democracy, despite, uh, you know, the well-known history of Afghanistan where empires go to die. Alexander the Great, Great Britain, um the Soviet Union, and now the United States. I don't know, actually, I never understood exactly why we were so opposed to Russia going into Afghanistan to begin with. We funded the Mujahideen, who, as you know, morphed into uh, al-Qaeda after they expelled the Soviet Union from Afghanistan, but I, I never understood what objection we had to allowing the Soviet Union to get bogged down and, uh, and let that be their problem. But we uh, we funded the Mujahideen and gave them um, uh, missiles, Stinger missiles, to allow them to shoot down the uh, Soviet uh, air power and ended up um, allowing the Al-Qaeda and the Taliban to get a foothold in Afghanistan to begin with. John Bolton never saw a conflict that he didn't think could be solved by sending uh, American troops and, and bombs. Rand Paul has been a, a, a constant critic 
of Rand Paul and advi- of, uh, of John Bolton and advised Donald Trump not to hire him to begin with, and he's happy that he's gone as well. War around the world is greatly diminished with Bolton out of the White House. I think he had a naive point of view for the world that we should topple regimes everywhere and institute, you know, democratic governments and we would make the world perfect or remake the world in our image. And frankly, it just doesn't work that way. There's a lot of history of getting rid of strong men in the Middle East and having them replaced by vacuums or chaos or actually making the place more hospitable for terrorist training. So I think his idea that the way you deal with Iran is you just topple the government or the way you deal with North Korea is you topple the government really wasn't what the president's been talking about. The president's actually talking about not having regime change and finding a diplomatic solution to some of these conflicts around the world. And I think the president deserves to have somebody who is his national security advisor who actually will try to further his policy and not try to stymie it. I do hope Rand Paul or Josh Hawley uh, become president of the United States in uh, 2024. I would love a, a Josh Hawley or a Rand Paul, Josh Hawley ticket. That would be fabulous. Because I think uh, one of the number one uh, criteria for electing a president if, is if you believe he's going to keep us out of these wasteful, useless foreign wars of no national interest to the United States. Six trillion dollars. I think it's I think it's actually four. The president said today it was six trillion dollars, but I think it's four trillion dollars we've wasted in the Middle East. We would have had to spend some of that to uh, to go in and rout Al Qaeda and and bomb the hell out of the Taliban in uh, Afghanistan. But we certainly haven't didn't need to stay there eighteen years, and we ought to leave now. When we decided that we were going to occupy Afghanistan was the day that we decided that we were going to have to uh, leave there in, well, let's just say, less than perfect circumstances. Donald Trump actually came out today. Uh, I, I don't know why he does this, but uh, who, am I to, who am I to judge? It's working for him. But uh, he's hammering John Bolton on the way out the door. They're engaged in this tit-for-tat of whether or not uh, John Bolton was fired or whether or not he, uh, he was uh, resigned. And... Uh, they, uh, they had a media scrum in the Oval Office today, and uh, Trump could not uh, restrain himself and decided to uh, give John Bolton some kicks while he was down. He made some very big mistakes when he talked about the Libyan model for Kim Jong-un. That was not a good statement to make. You just take a look at what happened with Gaddafi. That was not a good statement to make, and it set us back. And frankly, uh, he wanted to do things not necessarily tougher than me. You know, John's known as a tough guy. He's so tough, he got us into Iraq. And that's tough. And uh, but he's uh, somebody that I actually had a very good relationship with. But he wasn't getting along with people in the administration that I consider very important. And uh, I hope we we've left in good stead. But maybe we have and maybe we haven't. You know, the, a big deal was made that John Bolton was uh, not at the summit uh, where Donald Trump met with Kim Jong-un the first time. I think that was in uh, Singapore. Mm. Some place that uh, Kim Jong-un could take a train to. That would not be Singapore, but maybe it was Singapore. That's right. Uh, the Chinese flew him over there. Um and the reason he wasn't there, he had gone off to a trip in Mongolia or somewhere, is because he had made that statement right on the eve of the summit that could only be interpreted 
to des- as designed to try to sabotage it that uh, the administration wanted to apply the same model in North Korea that they applied in Libya. Now, say what you want about John Bolton. He's not a stupid man. He knew exactly uh, what those, how those words b- would be interpreted because, really, there's only one way to interpret them, that we want to uh, topple the regime and end up with him uh, getting a, uh, a rectal exam with a bayonet, like what happened to Moar Gaddafi. But um, it's very interesting that he's uh, that uh, Bolton has shown the door now in the lead up to the 2020 presidential campaign because one of the issues is going to be whether or not we elect another president that's going to keep us out of these wars. And as you know, Joe Biden is the Democrat front runner. The establishment in Washington is desperate to get back to business as usual by bringing on another um, easily persuaded politician who's going to stick his finger in the air and uh, and do whatever they tell him to do and uh, joe biden was a big supporter of the iraq war he's trying to deny it now he was on npr the other day saying that he opposed the iraq war and then one of his advisors had to come out and say well he misspoke and i guess you could believe that joe biden at this point doesn't remember whether or not he supported or opposed the war in Iraq because he can't remember anything else, including where he's at or when he was vice president or who, who even he served as vice president. He forgot Barack Obama's name the other day. So John Bolton's out. He ought to uh, apologize, beg forgiveness from the families of uh, who lost loved ones in Iraq and Syria. He ought to spend the rest of his life uh, trying to work for redemption of some kind. But he won't. And if he doesn't, you know, it's just fine with me if he rots in hell. But he's done a hell of a lot of damage in this, this, uh, this world. Should have never been in the White House to begin with, and I'm glad he's gone. Stick with us. We'll be right back after these messages. Does your current bathroom need to be updated immediately? Introducing One Day Bath and Shower Remodeling, the complete and hassle-free way to get the new bathroom of your dreams in as little as one day and for as little as $1.99 a month. Yes, the experts at One Day Bath and Shower Remodeling will come to you anywhere in the country and show you all the customized options. Now you can have a brand new bathroom in as little as one day. Large or small bathroom. If you want a new bathtub or shower installed, we can do it in as little as one day. And if you call right now, you can save $750 off your remodel. We make it easy by offering you financing as low as $199 per month. Call now to schedule your free in-home consultation. 800-693-3152. 800-693-3152. That's 800-693-3152. Here we go. 
Well, in what can only be described as one of the more egregious and um, disgusting displays of historical revisionism and just plain uh, in, inhumane callousness, the New York Times, on the 18th anniversary of the attacks in 9-11 yesterday, the attacks that killed almost 3,000 people, put a, a, a tweet on Twitter and included in one of their uh, their news stories a quote that said, 18 years have passed since airplanes took aim at the World Trade Center and brought them down. Now, let me just read that again in case it needs to soak in. Airplanes took aim at the World Trade Center and brought them down. Now, that is clearly an example of the New York Times not being able to say out loud what actually happened on September 11, 2001, which is we were attacked by radical Islam, radical Islamic terrorists, and uh, and they uh, they killed 3,000 people. But the idea that they would put that in their newspaper and on Twitter, and they, they had to take it down from Twitter, is just mind-boggling. It's, it's unbelievable. And it really makes you wonder if they're that... Uh, deranged or callous or were they in fact trolling people on the anniversary of 9-11 in order to to get attention and get clicks on their tweet they just trolling people because nobody could be stupid enough to write um a headline or a tweet like that When they when they finally did revise the uh, the line in their online version of their newspaper, I think they they said something like um, a version of what Ilhan Omar said. Uh, you know, people flew jets into the World Trade Centers. They still refuse to acknowledge the the place of Islamic terrorism in the attack. Yeah, they, they changed it. It said, 18 years have passed since terrorists commandeered airplanes to take aim at the World Trade Center and bring them down. Still no mention of Islamic terrorism or Muslims or jihad. And then you've got old, uh, what's that guy, uh, Moran over there on CNN. He took the occasion of 9-11 yesterday to talk about uh, white supremacy, uh, white supremacists, and, uh, and right-wing terrorism. Here's a startling statistic. Since 9-11, right-wing terrorists have killed more people in the United States than jihadist terrorists. That's according to New America. There are some folks for who, for their own political purposes, would like to keep the focus on only one form of political violence over another. But that would be unwise. Because we don't have the luxury of choosing which threats we face. Yeah, I don't believe the statistic to begin with. I think the ADL and and the Southern Poverty Law Center and all of these other groups are trumping up uh, right wing violence for their own political ends. But even if you uh, even if you didn't, uh, even if you did believe them, why would you start keeping uh, track after nine eleven? Are they counting? the 50 people killed at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, Florida as Islamic terrorism or right-wing terrorism. 
I'll bet you, and I'll find out and let you know, that they're counting that as right-wing terrorism. They're probably counting a lot of these Islamic attacks as uh, right-wing terrorism. Because as far as they're concerned, anybody that commits uh, terrorism is a right-winger. But um, there's no doubt about the fact that the major terrorist threat in this country is Islamic terrorism. And by far the greatest threat of any kind is criminal inner-city gang violence where each and every weekend they have the equivalent of one of these mass shootings that uh, is in in numerous Democrat-run cities with with gun control throughout this country. Well, let's uh, let's try to find some good news. Uh, The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals has been transformed by by Donald Trump uh, judicial appointments. The, the bastion that has aggressively shaped uh, a, a center-right country into this uh, liberal dystopia that uh, you see today has been reshaped by the Trump administration. And just yesterday, we saw a prime example of that when an Obama-appointed uh, district judge named John Tigger had his ruling on a nationwide uh, injunction against the administration's asylum reforms. He had his injunction overturned, and and the uh, Ninth Circuit said he could only enforce that in the Ninth Circuit, which on the border does include California and Arizona, but doesn't include Texas. And this is even before the Ninth Circuit has reviewed Tigger's ruling on the merits. So it's a good sign. I think the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, or the Ninth Circuit, Judicial Circuit, needs to be broken up. It's way too big. It was put together back when the West was uh, more sparsely populated than now. We need to, uh, to break off California and perhaps make it its own Judicial Circuit and Washington and uh, in the Northwest uh, as a, a separate one. But that's a little bit of good news. We've got uh, good news on that front. Ted Cruz and Alyssa Milano. You know, Alyssa Milano went on Twitter and uh, and sent one of her vulgar tweets uh, to, to Ted Cruz, challenging him to a debate. Now, if you're stupid enough to challenge Ted Cruz to a debate, I think he was the debate captain... Uh, at one of his uh, Ivy League schools in law, um, then you get what you deserve, and that's exactly what happened. Uh, she got schooled, but Ted Cruz answered right back, said, yeah, sure, come on by, we'll debate. And they streamed this out. Alessa Milano opened up the session by admitting that she suffers from a il- mental illness and then letting everybody know also that she had two handguns in her house. At one point, Ted Cruz had to explain to her the difference between a semi-automatic rifle and a machine gun. Now, this is a woman who decided that she was going to jaunt on up to Washington, D.C. and debate Ted Cruz on gun control 
without bothering to learn the difference between a machine gun and a semi-automatic rifle. But it's good that people are talking. I hope she learned something. I doubt very seriously she did. She went on with Fredo uh, right after and uh, said she didn't think it was going to do any good. But it's good that people are talking. Stick with us. We'll be right back. We're going to be joined by Ryan Lovelace to discuss his new book, Search and Destroy, The Inside Campaign Against Brett Kavanaugh. We're going to be out for two messages, and then we'll be right back on the Mojo Five O Radio Network. Stick with us. I've been working at Santa's Workshop for a long time and thought I'd seen it all. That was until I learned that when you add Xfinity Mobile to Xfinity Internet, you can save hundreds on your wireless bill. When you add Xfinity Mobile to Xfinity Internet, you can get a powerful Internet experience and nationwide coverage on the most reliable network. Choose the data option that's right for you. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Xfinity Mobile requires Xfinity Internet. Based on root metrics by IHS Markets Root Score reports 2H 2020 of four mobile networks. When the weather outside is frightful, the Hyundai Santa Fe is, what's the word, delightful. Because it's got available H-Track all-wheel drive to make being out together better. Enter for your chance to win the newly redesigned Santa Fe, packed with all the jingle bells and whistles you need to go dashing through the snow together. To enter, visit Amazon.com slash Hyundai or scan the QR code on specially marked red and green Amazon boxes. No purchase necessary. Call 562-314-4603 for complete details. And you're back on Right Now with Jim Dawes, your daily journal of news, politics, and culture from an American nationalist perspective on the Mojo 5 radio network. Well, about one year ago, Senate Democrats launched a frantic campaign of character assassination against then-appeals court judge Brett Kavanaugh, trying to defeat his nomination to the Supreme Court. You may remember scenes like this as the hearings began. Well, despite their determined obstruction, at the 11th hour, just as Kavanaugh's confirmation seemed certain, the Democrats brought forward a 30-year-old uncorroborated allegation of sexual assault. And then, and then we were treated to what is perhaps one of the most sordid and despicable political smears in American political history. Joining us now to talk about it is Ryan Lovelace, author of Search and Destroy, Inside the Campaign Against Brett Kavanaugh, which you can find now on Amazon. Brett, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Brett uh, covers legal news and analysis for Was- in Washington for the National Law Journal and the American Lawyer, and you can find him on Twitter at LovelaceRyanD. That's at LovelaceRyanD. You know, it's really impossible to overstate the spectacle that we saw uh, at the Kavanaugh confirmation hearing, and I want to start uh, by asking you to just describe your book and why you wrote it, and then I want to ask you some questions about how Professor Ford uh, came to be before the Senate Judiciary Committee. Sure. Well, thanks so much for having me. You know, really, the 
the reason why I wanted to write this book was because there were so many puzzles and unanswered questions coming out of these hearings and things that I knew that I was privy to that I wanted to be able to share with others so they could look into things and do their own homework to determine what happened. You know, in those first set of hearings that you were just playing some of the audio from, what folks didn't know when they were listening to that and when they were watching that unfold is that each time one of those protesters would get hauled out of the room by Capitol Police, they had a PR firm called Megaphone Strategies that would ping me as a reporter and tell me the number of people that have been arrested is now this much. Would you like to talk to this protester who was just arrested? And all of that sort of a thing because it was an orchestrated attempt from even before Judge Kavanaugh was selected all the way through until the month of September when Christine Blasey Ford stepped forward with her allegations against then-Judge Kavanaugh. And really in listening to her, you know, one of the big questions that I had left was trying to understand why she came forward and how she came forward. You know, she said she couldn't remember when the exact event that she alleged, um, you know, Brett Kavanaugh assaulted her at occurred. She couldn't say precisely where it happened. She's the only one that's been able to say what happened. No one else has corroborated it. Anyone else she's pointed to has either said that didn't happen or they can't say that it happened. And so the why was the only thing that remained consistent throughout. And she said her why, the reason for why she brought this forward was because of a sense of civic duty. But then I learned in looking at her encrypted messages to the Washington Post before she even linked up with Democratic activists and left-leaning lawyers that she was trying to go to the press. She was trying to go to the Washington Post. And then later, after all this is over and carefully examining so much of this, I've uncovered that Deborah Katz, Christine Blasey Ford's attorney, said that Christine Blasey Ford was motivated in part by what Judge Kavanaugh, soon to be Justice Kavanaugh at that point, might do to Roe versus Wade and the right to obtain an abortion. Well, you uh, you mentioned uh, the lawyer Katz and her uh, her most recent remark that I think you dug out and brought to light. Uh, here that is for the listeners. Aftermath of these hearings, I believe that Christine's testimony brought about more good than the harm misogynist Republicans caused by allowing Kavanaugh on the court. We were going to have a conservative. Elections have consequences. But he will always have an asterisk next to his name. When he takes a scalpel to Roe v. Wade, we will know who he is. We know his character and we know what motivates him. And that- so it wasn't necessarily a search for the truth or to, to bring forward uh, any accusations dealing with Kavanaugh's qualifications. It was a political hit uh, all about Roe versus Wade. And that's what she's admitting right there. And, you know, I think it's really interesting because in that same talk, that's in the, at a Applied Feminism and Me Too conference, a Feminist Legal Theory Conference at the University of Baltimore, where she's trying to train younger lawyers, newer lawyers, about how to do the type of work that she does, Deborah Katz, Christine Blasey Ford's attorney. And one of the things that Christine Blasey Ford's attorney says is, when you have a case like this, you can't just look to the law and represent your client according to what the law dictates. You need a press strategy. You need a legislative strategy. You need to work with organized forces that are in the nonprofit realm to accomplish your intended goal. And in this case, it's very clearly a political agenda and a political goal, which is to taint anything that Judge Kavanaugh might do with Roe versus Wade. You know, thinking back to what the left has told us in the first two years of President Trump's administration, with Justice Gorsuch, they said he sits on a stolen seat. His seat belongs to Merrick Garland, who President Obama picked and the Senate rejected. But do they say it belongs to him? And with Justice Kavanaugh, now we're hearing them say, as Deborah Katz just did in that audio played, that there needs to be an asterisk next to his name. Those things are all about undermining the legitimacy and authority of the court and diminishing public trust and confidence in the institutions that, you know, 
the judiciary and the Supreme Court. And the campaign you described is really a scorched earth, when at all cost uh, campaign that they conducted. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it really, it did, as you said, uh, cast um, uh, discredit on the Supreme Court because most of you know the population pays attention to these things uh, casually. They don't get deep into the the uh, the substance of the issue, and and they smeared this man for days on end. Uh, and and in your open, you you mentioned about the um, the details that did not come forward in the hearings, and one of the details that always. Um, interested me and i never heard any uh questioning on is um christine blasey ford's connection with monica mclean monica mclean was a former fbi agent former doj official who worked for prepahara in the southern district of new york and uh by all accounts blasey ford uh, was visiting monica mclean a strident effort trumper uh at her beach house in rehoboth maryland when she wrote this uh, initial letter that she sent to the Judiciary Committee. Right, right. And one of the things we've learned, you know, in and my reporting shows is that Madam McLean was indeed leaning on Christine Blasey Ford. And in her initial messages to the Washington Post over this encrypted app, which I've published in the back of the book for folks to review for themselves, you can see her saying, I, you know, when the Washington Post doesn't immediately jump at her alleging some things, she says, I've been advised to go to the New York Times or to other senators. And later in her hearing, she was asked, well, who advised you? And she only answered beach friends without precisely explaining who exactly that was. That was now, a nice little sleight this, of hand because everybody assumed that she was talking about beach friends in California when she, she was, in fact, talking about Monica McLean. Right, right. And there was so much of that that wasn't known at the time. If you were, you know, as you were mentioning, a casual observer, you weren't really able to dig into this because so many in the press decided it wasn't worth doing. You know, I've talked to so many folks, so many of my colleagues who say, well, the truth isn't really ever going to be knowable here. There's an unknowable whatever. But I believe the truth is more obtainable. I think there's a more attainable version of the truth that's out there. And what I wanted to do in this book in Search and Destroy was really provide information and not affirmation. So one of the things, for example, that I think really gets to this point is for the longest time people asked, well, how come the Senate Judiciary Committee didn't get her letter sooner? How come Senator Feinstein from California sat on the letter? What happened there? And what I uncovered was Deborah Katz, Christine Bosley Ford's attorney, to Diane Feinstein's staff on September 20th was the first time that Senate Democrats received authorization to turn it over to Republicans. Deborah Katz said, okay, now you can give it to them. By that point, Deborah Katz had already gone on CNN and on television and talked all about it. Christine Blasey Ford had outed herself. So she was willing to go to the press before to the Judiciary Committee. And I know this because she also talked to me. She communicated with me because I had been writing about her as the attorney for this mystery client when we didn't know who the accuser was yet. But yet she contacted all of us in the press but she didn't go to the Judiciary Committee. And that was one of the things that first piqued my interest about there has to be more to this story. And it was so concerning that so many folks in the press didn't do the due diligence to find out what the truth was so that people that can only afford the time to casually tune in and tune out to know what they need to know never had the opportunity to really dig into it. And that's what I try to do in Search and Destroy is both put it in context and then give people the full thing in the back of the book so they can do their homework for themselves, not have to rely on the different partisan filters that were trying to attack Judge Kavanaugh or do other things. I always thought it was interesting that Judge or that uh, Professor Ford claimed 
that despite the fact of being a, a, a multi-degreed professional and a professor at a, you know, a major college, she uh, was completely unaware of how to go about getting in touch with her, um, or her state senator or any of her representatives. And yet, by the time she comes to Washington, she's lawyered up with, uh, with two of the, the most vicious uh, you know, activist attack dogs uh, that she could have found in the whole city. Yeah, I think you've keyed in on a really important thing. You know, they kept saying she was ambivalent. She didn't know how to reach the senator. She was trying to go to the Senate group, but she just didn't know how. But at the point at which they were saying that and when she testified to that, as, as you point out, she had already gone to a congresswoman. You know, she had she called her congresswoman's office. And then she proceeded to go through all these other machinations that are all involved in this left campaign. You know, one of the things I really tried to hone in on was who was around her and prepping her for this hearing. And she linked up with Deborah Katz, the attorney who was seated by her side throughout the hearings in the summer. But as we got closer to the fall in September, more folks started to come in. There was a Democratic PR firm called SKD Knickerbocker that helped prep her. Uh, folks from the Clinton administration like Michael Bromwich, others that were involved in the Anita Hill hearings against Justice Clarence Thomas, her team started to grow and grow. And really, we began to see how the way in which the organized forces, to use their terminology, had had been used beforehand, had before Christine Blasey Ford came forward, then served to exacerbate what had gone on with her accusation and make it headline news instead of something that was, you know, swept away um, when there was no corroborating evidence provided. Well, you know, uh, Christine Blasey Ford made accusations and she claimed that uh, three other people had knowledge of the events surrounding Kavanaugh's alleged uh, sexual assault of her. All three of them denied having any knowledge of it or memory of it whatsoever. So we had a, a situation of one person's word against another. And when you are put in that position, what you normally do in the law is uh, determine uh, credibility. And Blasey Ford uh, lied repeatedly uh, at these hearings. Uh, and I'm just going to uh, play one of these uh, right now when she's being questioned by the sex crimes prosecutor. I think it was from Texas. I can't remember her name. Um, but uh, she's questioning her about her statement that she had a uh, phobia of flying. May I ask, Dr. Ford, how did you get to Washington? In an airplane. Okay. It's, I asked that because it's been reported by the press that you would not submit to an interview with the committee because of your fear of flying. Is, is that true? Well, I was willing, I was hoping that they would come to me, but then uh, realized that was an unrealistic request. It would have been a quicker trip for me. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So um, that was certainly what I was hoping was to avoid having to get on an airplane, but I eventually was able to uh, get up the gumption with the help of some friends and get on the plane. When you were here in uh, the mid-Atlantic mid area back in uh, August, uh, end of July, August, how did you get here? Also by airplane. I come here once a year during the summer to visit my family. Okay. I'm sorry, not here. I go to Delaware. Okay. Thanks. Um, in fact, you fly fairly frequently for your hobbies and your You've had to fly for your work. Is that true? Correct. Unfortunately. I thought I had uh, narrowed that clip down a little bit, but uh, the, the, the story is that uh, she fl flies repeatedly. She is a globetrotter uh, pursuing her passion of uh, surfing that uh, has flown all over the South Pacific and South America. And yet when it comes 
to actually come into the Judiciary Committee, she claimed that she uh, was afraid to fly. So she was caught in a lie right there and several others. Um, and yet, you know, we had the Democrats telling us day after day that uh, we have to believe Blase Ford, uh, that uh, we, uh, we can't question her credibility. We can only question the seriousness of, of her accusations. That's right. And, and in those questions from Rachel Mitchell, that sex crimes prosecutor from Arizona that's, that's asking her those things, you know, you can kind of hear her start to probe and get at, you know, some of the truth of, well, she actually did fly. But, but she was she handling her it. with such kid gloves. You would have never seen a prosecutor uh, uh, handle a, a, a witness that gently in a court of law. Exactly. She was proceeding as though it was a deposition instead of a cross-examination. And really, that's one of the reasons why the left was so successful in bringing Christine Blasey Ford forward. You know, in reporting out this book, one of the things that I consistently heard was that Michael Avenatti bringing forward another accuser and Julie Swetnick was really pivotal to turning the tide because once that allegation crumbled, people began to see the truth behind some things. But I think it's important to look at the different ways in which they brought their respective clients' allegations forward. You know, Christine Blasey Ford never appeared on camera without her attorneys at her side. She only ever faced questions from sympathetic Democrats and from Rachel Mitchell, who, as you played there, was very, um, you know, easygoing and uh, sympathetic as well. Probing questions, to be sure, but not adversarial. Julie Swetnick, who was the accuser brought forward by Michael Avenatti, was forced to take questions on camera alone with an NBC investigative journalist who didn't have to buy into the narrative of believe the woman. She didn't feel that same pressure because both she was a woman and able to say, I'm an investigative journalist doing my job. It's my right to ask these questions. The Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee didn't have that same opportunity. Christine Blasey Ford, to this day, has not faced adversarial questions. And I think you're getting at the truth of anything where the presumption of innocence is not going to reach a courtroom of law, which is the design and goal of the weaponization of this Me Too movement in this moment. It's important to recognize that because it explains a bit better about how they were able to so effectively spread the allegation and then never really face any questions about it. Well, uh, in addition to that uh, inconsistency, as I guess the, guess the polite term for it, um, Blasey Ford said that the first time these allegations against, well, the first time uh, these events that she described came to light was during a marriage counseling session in 2012 when she had to explain why she had insisted on adding another door to the front of their house. Uh, that is another statement uh, that went unchallenged. Uh, but, um, you know, amateur detectives determined that that door had been added to the house years previous to the renovation and uh, was probably uh, there so that she could have a, a separate entrance for her in-home marriage counseling business. And one of the really interesting things about that, too, is the time in which she was discussing that when she says it's the first time that, you know, she was really ever talking about this was also coincidentally the first time that Judge Kavanaugh was really being talked about as a potential Supreme Court justice. The New Yorker's Jeffrey Tubin, their legal uh, correspondent, had just written an article that year, earlier that year before she was in therapy, at which point he was saying, if GOP nominee Mitt Romney wins the nomination and defeats President Barack Obama, 
his most likely action, if he gets the opportunity to put a person on the court, it's going to be Judge Brett Kavanaugh from the D.C. Circuit. You know, Brett Kavanaugh was not someone who was an unknown commodity, either in Washington or in national political circles. He had been a clerk on the Supreme Court. He had worked at some of the biggest law firms in Washington. He had been a judge on the federal appellate court for a decade. And before that, he had worked in President George W. Bush's White House and had been with working with Ken Starr in the Starr investigation during the Clinton years. So he was very well known to the left and very well known in legal circles and political circles, but not quite so well known outside of Washington. But throughout all those different controversies with the Clintons, with his own judicial nominations in the past, never before had Christine Blasey Ford felt compelled to step forward when she saw him on TV. It was only at the point at which after which his name was being talked about as a potential Supreme Court justice that she says is when she decided to come forward. Well, it's pretty ironic uh, that the Senate Judiciary Committee argued so strenuously, the Democrats on the committee, against affording Brett Kavanaugh due process and some sort of standard of proof. Uh, every single one of them, and as far as I know, every every uh, Senate Democrat voted against Maybe I, I think uh, Manchin finally voted for uh, Kavanaugh's confirmation, but every other Democrat in the Senate uh, voted against Kavanaugh based on these uh, these spurious allegations that uh, that were that didn't even rise to the flimsiest level of uh, of standards of proof or due process. Right, and I think one of the interesting things about that too, in which the way in which Democrats proceeded it may help explain better why they did what they did. And by that, I mean, with Justice Gorsuch's nomination, people reflect on that now and think that it was relatively smooth compared to what Judge Kavanaugh, now Justice Kavanaugh, experienced. But in point of fact, he actually witnessed and experienced the first partisan filibuster of a Supreme Court nomination ever. Democrats lined up to filibuster his nomination because they didn't like anyone that President Trump would have picked. Republicans nuked that and got rid of the filibuster and said, we're not going to play these games, we're going to confirm Gorsuch, and then when Judge Kavanaugh was nominated, nominated, they were going to do the same. But since Democrats had kind of pulled the trigger on that and lost that bullet in their chamber, they didn't have anything to turn to when they got to Judge Kavanaugh's nomination. And that's part of why things got so much more personal so much quicker, because they didn't have the same political tools they had in the past to try to fight these things. And I think that's part of why we see Democrats lining up and taking a party line vote is because there was no political uh, fallout for them to not do so where there would have been if they actually had to make a deliberative choice as had so long been the process before the advice and consent process, which is really what I was expecting to unfold here. But what I uncovered and discovered was a search and destroy. Well, you know, there's sort of a disingenuous narrative coming out uh, regarding the the um, failure to give a, no- a confirmation here into Merrick Garland. And that is that um, that Mitch McConnell as the Senate Majority Leader, uh, owed uh, Barack Obama's administration an answer as to why they weren't proceeding with his uh, his confirmation, and it was it was as if he had to come up with a legitimate reason not to go forward. And and really, the the reason is not that it was the last year of uh, an administration or anything like that. The reason was is because the Republicans held the majority and they weren't going to confirm a nominee uh, of uh, of the uh, the opposing party's presidential candidate they've got the votes they are going to exercise their uh, their uh, power uh, given to them ad- ad- in advice and consent 
and they just weren't going to do it. And and now we're placed in another position where it was uh, raised the possibility that uh, that the president uh, might have to nominate a a replacement for um, Judge um, uh, Ginsburg, and uh, and saying that uh, you know the same rule will apply that uh, that Mitch McConnell won't be able to move forward when in fact he. He certainly will because he's got the votes to move forward, and that's that's why he will move forward. It is, and, and you know, it's really interesting too. You know, the, there was a lot of debate at the time, but I think people may have forgotten by now when Judge Garland was nominated. You know, the advice and consent process does not necessarily mean a vote has to be taken. Part of the advice that Senate Republicans, led by Majority Leader McConnell, was giving was. And the advice is if you nominate someone, we're not going to vote to confirm them at this point in time. At this point in the presidential election cycle, we want to give the American people the opportunity to weigh in on this occasion. Now, I think if things, if a vacancy comes voluntarily or involuntarily from Justice Ginsburg's seat uh, before the 2020 election, things are only going to get worse. Uh, you see already. In the, How could they possibly get worse, Ryan? How could they possibly <laughs> well, get worse? I've never seen such a spectacle in my life. Yeah, well, I I think we've started to see, even without a vacancy, the left organize around the courts when there isn't a vacancy on the Supreme Court, which is something we've never seen before. You know, we see them talking about expanding the court. We see them talking about doing other things to try to change the way the court works. We've seen Senate Democrats actually go so far as to write to the Supreme Court and ask them to rule in a certain way so that it meets the political outcome that they want for their constituents. Or they threaten consequences. Right. Right. And that's that's all something we have never seen before. And it's continuing to go on. There doesn't seem to have been any recognition of or lessons learned from this whole Kavanaugh controversy. And it's something that I think judges and justices are finally waking up to because so many of them aren't really political animals. But they understand that in today's environment and the way things work, they need to be aware of the politics of these things because all of this is going to matter and it's only going to become more vitriolic and hopefully not violent. Well, you've been very generous with your time. I just want to ask you one more question before we go. Um, Julie Swetnick, she presented affidavits to the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee that were demonstrably and materially false. Is she going to face any consequences, uh, you know, from allowing uh, Michael Avenetti to uh, to put her in that position? That's one of the things that I wanted to find out in reporting out Search and Destroy. And the Senate Judiciary Committee chairman, I learned, referred her and particularly those things that you mentioned to the Justice Department for further investigation. The Justice Department did confirm to me that they had those things. They wouldn't tell me exactly where in the process they were of investigating them, particularly because that's the standard operating procedure of the Justice Department is not to acknowledge an ongoing investigation while it's happening. It's been, a, it's been, folks, a, it's been a year. What, what kind of process? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the facts of the at issue are pretty straightforward. Uh, she she dis, disowned her own affidavit uh, that she right. had filed and signed with the, the committee. So that is as far as I'm concerned, perjury. And the only way to really get at that if the Justice Department doesn't take action is through the Senate itself. You know, since the publication of my book, Search and Destroy, Senator Tom Tillis of North Carolina, who's on the Judiciary Committee, um, you know, and hearing that audio you played from Deborah Katz earlier, Christine Blasey Ford's attorney, had said, you know, maybe this this does warrant investigation. Maybe this warrants looking more into and has talked about the possibility that there could be an investigation there. If Senate Republicans, if the Senate Judiciary Committee looks more into it, there's an opportunity for 
more investigation of who exactly perjured themselves and all the different actors involved in this. Whether or not that happens may be the only way that, as a reporter, I could definitively say whether or not someone was definitively lying in a way that is criminal. But without that happening, you know, it's entirely possible that this is something that folks just let slide by the wayside in the way other political controversies have in the past. Well, if there are no consequences to uh, to filing false affidavits and lying to uh, the 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 committee, then uh, then they can expect more of this. And uh, and I think that's uh, that's exactly what we can expect. Ryan Lovelace is author of Search and Destroy Inside the Campaign Against Brett Kavanaugh. You can find it on Amazon, and you can follow Ryan at Lovelace Ryan D on Twitter. Ryan, thanks for so much for joining us. I appreciate your time, and I hope you'll come back. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Mojo. Millions of people today have no dental insurance. If you're without insurance, do you have a plan to care for your teeth without spending a fortune? Introducing DentalPlans.com. How would you like to save 10 to 60% off your next dental visit for as little as $7 a month? We offer trusted dental savings plans from companies like Cigna and Aetna with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Be a part of the 1 million-plus happy smiles served since 1999 that save money when they visit the dentist. You can save on cleanings, dentures, braces, x-rays, fillings, crowns, root canals, and even teeth whitening. Call 800-296-1247 now to start saving immediately. Mention promo code RADIO to receive 15% off any plan and for a limited time, one month free. Call 800-296-1247. That's 800-296-1247. Fees billed annually plus a $20 processing fee. Savings plans are not insurance. Savings will vary by provider, plans, and zip Consult with plan detail page for additional plan terms. Not all plans and offers available in all markets. Mojo. Well, we lost T. Boone Pickens today. He's dead at 91 years old. He was a true American character, a true American icon, a, 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 a just a... a, a a a one of a kind from originally from Oklahoma did his business in Dallas, Texas was in the oil business made and lost billions of dollars several times and uh, was never without uh, something interesting to say he was a big proponent of American energy independence and the one thing you can be thankful for is he lived to see the day when fracking and, and energy exploration in fact made this country energy independence. T. Boone Pickens, dead at 91, buried there in his uh, his home state of Oklahoma. We'll miss you. That takes us to the end of this edition. I want to bet you back here again tomorrow, right here on the Mojo 5.0 Radio Network. When the weather outside is frightful, the Hyundai Santa Fe is, hmm, what's the word? Delightful. Because it's got available H-Track all-wheel drive to make being out together better. Enter for your chance to win the newly redesigned Santa Fe, packed with all the jingle bells and whistles you need to go dashing through the snow together. To enter, visit Amazon.com slash Hyundai or scan the QR code on specially marked red and green Amazon boxes. No purchase necessary. Call 562-314-4603 for complete details. Between prepping ingredients, setting the table, and planning your tomorrow, sometimes you need an extra hand with dinner. Delta Faucet is here to help. 
Just ask your connected home device to fill your pasta pot with Delta Faucet Voice IQ technology and fill it with the perfect amount of water. Done. Visit deltafaucet.com slash voice IQ to see how voice IQ can fill your dog's bowl, wash your hands, and more.